Hi, everyone, and welcome again uh, to another one of my podcasts on Gaudi Mitzvah 22, which you can access either via YouTube video or on my Podbean podcast, which you can get on Spotify, Apple and uh, Amazon Music. I'm still working on trying to get it on Google, but as I've said before, Google is the Antichrist and they're being uh, rather recalcitrant about it. So we'll see. We'll see if I can finally get Google on board. Uh, anyway, my guest and I'm very excited. It's it's been a it's been a delayed conversation last week. I was supposed to do it and the power went off here. So maybe uh, the forces of the demonic realm do not want this interview to go forward. Who knows? And we had trouble linking up today, too. So <laughs> the, maybe maybe a meteorite will come crashing through my roof in about five minutes to put an end to this. But anyway, no, my guest tonight is uh, Michael Heinlein. And uh, Michael uh, works for Our Sunday Visitor. What is your exact title at Our Sunday Visitor? I am editor of their website called simplycatholic.com. That's right. And I wrote that down, but I'm such a Luddite. I wrote it down on a piece of paper and it's missing here. It's AWOL right in front of me. That's why I had to ask my guests, what is official? Aren't I so professional as an interviewer? I'll tell you. Um, Anyway, the the main reason, though, why I uh, have you on here is because you've just recently published a very important book, a very interesting book on the life of the late, great Cardinal George. And the name of the book is Glorifying Christ. And uh, it's, you know, it, it speaks for itself. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful text extolling uh, the virtues of Cardinal George and going into great detail into his biography, which is actually a very interesting biography. So why don't we just um, just start with a very open, uh, open-ended thing uh, of you sort of, why don't you give the, the listeners, the viewers in one sense, let, let, I'm going to start with this before we get into the details of Cardinal George's biography. I'm going to ask you, why, why were you interested in Cardinal George in the first place? What prompted you to write a biography of Cardinal George rather than a bunch of other prelates, deceased prelates that you could have written on? Why Cardinal George? Well, first and foremost, I think Cardinal George was someone who was filled with faith, who was a teacher of the faith, uncompromising, a man of virtue. He had a rare combination of of many things. I had first uh, laid eyes on him when he first came to Chicago. I was a young kid in grade school and was very interested in uh, his demeanor, his character, his personality. And then I got to meet him several times uh, when I was a student at the Catholic University of America in Washington. And I was just always struck by the clarity of thought, the ability to preach and teach without any reservation, um, someone but who who was authentic and and could really show that integrity, that wholeness of person uh, that we long for in leadership. And so when he died, it was very clear, uh, not just to me, but so many people, that he left a major void in the life of the church, particularly in this country. And so for me, I just thought at first, how can we keep his memory alive? And what small part can I play in that, you know? And uh, I thought about trying to get some people maybe to collect his columns or republish them in some way from the Archdiocesan newspaper in Chicago. And that kind of took some different turns. And then a lot of people started suggesting that maybe I'd look at a biography because uh, so many people who were part of his life were aging And, you know, it would be important to kind of harness some of their stories and witness about Francis George before they went on to meet the Lord. 
And uh, no one else was really moving to write a biography. I had talked to several people who were kind of interested in getting that moving, and it never was taking off. So I brought all that to prayer many times, and I really felt the Lord uh, nudging me to to try and start it and see where things would go. Yeah, that's very good. I mean, I, I never met Cardinal George in person, uh, uh, but I, I was always a fantastic you know, a tremendous admirer of his from afar, uh, simply because of the, you know, the turmoil, the chaos, the confusion uh, in the American church and the Catholic church in general during the time when he was, you know, Cardinal of, of, of Chicago. And he just was such a great stabilizing force, stabilizing influence, a man of such deep charity as well as profound intellect. And uh, I've had conversations with numerous people and it's really funny how they all use the exact same word you just used. They all said, upon his death, a great void has opened up in the American church. And I think that's a lot to do with the fact of his of his intellect. I mean, there simply was not, when he was Cardinal of Chicago, there, there was not an equal to him intellectually in the American episcopacy. He, he really was the theological brains of the American episcopacy and, and his loss was a tremendous one. Uh, and so once again, too, before we get into his biography, so our viewers know why it is we're interested in him, you know, Chicago is not exactly an easy archdiocese to rule, right? No, no. He asked Cardinal Bernadine that once years before it was even on his radar screen that he would be going back home to Chicago as archbishop. He told us in one of his um, talks, which was published, he asked him, what's it like to govern a place like Chicago? And and Cardinal Bernadine kind of laughed at him and said, what do you mean? It's not governable. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he find that out in a very real sense when he landed in Chicago in 1997, when he had a whole bunch of priests revolting against his appointment and writing the apostolic nuncio and uh, complaining about him and saying that this is a man we don't want as archbishop. And that, which is ironic because we, we can get into it, but Chicago didn't want him as a priest back when he was a 13 year old boy with polio. That's right. That's right. He did have polio and it severely, you know, impacted his, his, his leg, his walking um, uh, for the rest of his life. All right. So, yeah, that's another reason why his passing is left a void because he took on the task of, of, of running uh, one of the largest, uh, archdiocese in the united states and it is notoriously a difficult i think even more than someplace like a new york or a philadelphia or los angeles there's something about the church in chicago that is particularly fractured and and contentious uh with um with a a presbyterate that views itself quite independent of the of of the bishop uh, and as in opposition quite often to the bishop. So that 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 makes it a kind of uniquely ungovernable diocese with these entrenched interests in the clergy of Chicago. But anyway, let's 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 dive into his biography then. I mean, okay, because so he was a great man, a great intellect, uh, had to try and stabilize the diocese that was not really stabilizable. And so he had great courage and so forth. So let's go back to the beginning. Where was Cardinal George? We already know, but where was he born? his education, what was his young life like, what drew him to the priesthood, why did Chicago initially turn into, well, the polio, and so, so, so go ahead and launch into this. 
Yeah, Cardinal George was born in 1937 in Chicago. He's the first uh, native homegrown archbishop of the Windy City. Uh, the first, um, uh, 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 what, what should I say? He was the first uh, cardinal who was uh, from Chicago to participate in a, um, a consistory, first you know, native-born cardinal, too. Um, so he was uh, the youngest of two children. Yeah, he had an older sister, Margaret, who's still alive and has been very supportive and wonderful in helping with this project. Um, he was a premature baby, which is kind of interesting that the odds were always against him from the start. Yeah. And, uh, had to spend uh, the first many weeks uh, kind of in a makeshift uh, incubator in the family's bathroom where it was warmest, uh, his sister remembers. And um, anyway, oh, so he wasn't in a neonatal intensive care unit in a hospital. The, no, the doctor no. said, "Here, here's your little chicken incubator to put your baby that's in. Right. Yeah. Find a safe place and plug him in. That's, right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And so when he was about a month old, he was baptized uh, on Valentine's Day of 1937. And uh, and then the family moved to the northwest side. Um, St. Pascal's Parish is where he grew up. He went to the grade school there and uh, had his first communion there in May of 45. And that was when he first said very consistently, that is when I heard God's call to be a priest on the day of his first communion. And he was very devoted to their longtime pastor there and would help him clean or serve mass or, he, you know, he lived a couple blocks away. So the pastor would call the house and ask if Franny was available to come and do whatever at the parish. And so he really had this, this stirring in his heart from that young age. But, uh, as a young boy, he was rather mischievous, and he he had a, a gang of boys that he you know played around, went on bike rides, went to the uh, you know Ferris wheel and to the amusement parks, or um, you know just just lived the basic life of a of a. Chicago. So he was a normal little boy in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he talks about walking past the Cardinals' mansion in Chicago when he was a little boy to go to the Lincoln Park Zoo. And he said, that was just a house on the way to the zoo. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I found that quote because <laughs> he really was on the way to the zoo. When he... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the Cardinals' palace was well-placed yes, on, right. yeah, on the so way to the zoo. When he was in eighth grade, then he was um, afflicted with polio. Uh, it was late into... Uh, the winter, uh, the fall, winter there, right before Christmas, and he spent several months in the hospital, and he didn't know exactly what that was going to mean for priesthood for him. His pastor uh, was really pushing him, you know, to be a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago, and so as the system was back then, you matriculated through the seminary by beginning in high school, and so right at the end of that year, he would have been going to Quigley Prep Seminary in Chicago. And um, uh, he applied and was accepted, but they told him because of the disability that followed his uh, affliction with polio, that he would not be ordained a priest in Chicago. And in his own words, to heck with you guys, he said, and God opened other doors for him. Um, it's really interesting, though, to hear some of the stories about his illness. One in particular, when he was in the hospital, his sister told me this. He shared a room with an older man, and uh, they would talk back and forth, usually through a drawn curtain. And uh, the man told Cardinal George's mother that sometimes Franny would fall silent. And when the nurse would walk in and open the curtain or whatever, he would see 
his eyes focused on the crucifix. And so he was processing that pain and suffering from that early age through the cross. And that's something that I think stayed with him throughout his entire life, which his sister said after the polio, there was never a day that he wasn't in severe pain. Wow. I did not know that. So even into his adult life. Yes. Uh, yeah, and what was the pain in his legs, his back? His leg, uh, it caused back problems when he was a student at Tulane in the 60s. He had to go into traction therapy at, at New Orleans Hospital. Um, later on, it was causing knee problems for him when he was in his uh, late 40s. He started going to Mayo Clinic around that time. And they kept an eye. They wanted to follow him, too, because of the polio and see the effects it had on his body. But it was at that time he started wearing a leg brace that he wore the rest of his life and ultimately yeah. would have been buried with. Um, but that was, yeah, I mean, there were all sorts of problems that, that the polio kind of took effect on his body. We don't know if the polio was also related to the bouts with cancer that he had later in his life. There's a good working medical theory that, you know, polio survivors have a, a, a disposition to certain types of cancer. So maybe that also was an effect of that. We just don't know. Wow, that's interesting. I, did, I never knew that about polio. Uh, I was, of course, as, as as you were fortunate enough to be raised as children after the polio vaccine was in, invented. Yeah, um, that was anyway, the, years after he had it too, the salt. Yeah, I know. My, you know, my parents are in their eighties, and they tell stories of how everybody in there. They grew you know, this. My dad was in Toledo, Ohio. My mom grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and in both cases, they talk about the the polio scare that everybody was just terrified of it. Um, you, you were, because you would be fine one day and the next day you were deathly ill. I mean, there was just, there, it's not like, Oh, I kind of feel a little off today and it didn't build. I mean, it's just like, boom, it would just hit you. And then of course there were the iron lungs and, and, and even some deaths and so forth. So as a young boy, my point in bringing that up, you mentioned the story of him staring at the crucifix. Um, as a young boy with polio, he he had to have been worried uh, that you know, maybe this is going to kill me, you know, uh, yeah. or, or, you know, or do even worse damage to me than simply, you know, leave me with certain uh, disabilities, maybe some severe disabilities and that kind of thing. So in other words, my point is that at a very young age, he, he was showing some sanctity, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, he often would also say that one of the most important lessons in his life came from that time when uh, a neighborhood girl who also had polio, her father visited him and said, you know, Franny, um, never feel sorry for yourself. And he said that was so poignant because he was feeling sorry for himself, you know, <laughs> he wouldn't be at that age, especially yeah. uh, when you're learning that the plans you had for your life are unraveling. And he told the the priests of Chicago that many times, never feel sorry for yourself. And he would repeat that. And uh, that that speaks of a certain sanctity too, doesn't it? That yeah. he, he, he was never someone who allowed himself to come first. And he was always able to allow whatever the suffering was, be it, you know, uh, kind of an emotional or psychological suffering or a physical suffering. He never allowed that to keep him from giving of himself, from wow. making an oblation of himself, oblate of Mary Immaculate that he was. He always gave of himself. So his sister, for instance, when she was reading the book, she said, 
I learned so much suffering that my brother went through and he never talked about this stuff and yeah. he never let on. He, we never knew he was under this kind of anguish. Yeah. That's interesting. And it, I mean, I mean, people tend to react in many different ways to extreme suffering and pain, especially the result of illness. Um, he was perfect. He could be cranky, you know, he, he could get uh, very perturbed with people quickly when, especially when they had bad ideas, <laughs> but uh, well, we'll get to that. Okay. So he's rejected by Chicago because of the polio disabilities. And he said, Oh, to heck with you guys. So obviously then he, he joins up with the oblates of Mary Immaculate, right? So when did this happen? And uh, yeah, an interesting, almost providential thing, really. It was a, a classmate of his at St. Pascal's grade school, an eighth grade classmate who had an uncle that was an oblate of Mary Immaculate. And uh, this young boy was planning to go to the OMI seminary uh, in Belleville, Illinois, which was quite a long train ride from Chicago. It's right across the Mississippi from St. Louis. And um, so uh, the oblate's vocation director uh, was contacted by this um, uncle who was an OMI himself, and said, hey, there's a boy uh, in Chicago. Uh, he's not able to uh, pursue priesthood back home, but there's an interest and in maybe he'll join his classmate down here in Belleville. So he visited from St. Paul, Minnesota, um, visited the George home in Chicago, and he said, you can become a priest with us if you can walk across the room. And his sister was sitting there and she recalled it so vividly and she broke down into tears and said he got up and walked across the room. And uh, that was the beginning of a long road of service to the church. Wow, that's what a story that that's, you know, that would be the criterion for entry into the oblates. You know, all you got to do is walk across this room. One yes. wonders what would have happened had he not been able to cross that room. I wonder you know, if I don't know if if the if the priest would have said, OK, try again, <laughs> come I, back next week and try again. We'll see. He was on crutches at the time, you know, and, and was on crutches for a while after that. And I think that the Oblates at least thought, you know, we're a missionary order. And so you need to be able to yeah. maneuver on your own, you know. You have to be uh, he, was a whiz. he was a whiz on crutches. Uh, people remark on that because at the end of his life, he was back on crutches again. And he could go up and down the stairs of the archbishop's residence in Chicago like nobody's business. And people were amazed. And, but that that was a, a skill that he had to you know acquire because that was, yeah, yeah. was what it meant to leave his room. I but, love stories like that. That's why I like reading biographies, because it often it, it shows how contingent our lives are in a sense. I mean, think of, you know, this, this man who becomes this great figure in the American Catholic church and Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago. So his entire future hinged on simply being able to walk across this room. Right. I know. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and if the, and if he had not been able to, maybe he would have ended up, you know, selling insurance instead or something who the heck knows, or, you know, becoming a professor of history or something, but anyway, okay. So he, he joined, he goes to the seminary, the, the Mary, Oblates of Mary Immaculate seminary and uh, gets ordained. And, and so then what does he do after ordination? Does he go into the mission field and, and, you know, uh, what, what is, what was the, his career in the Oblates like? Well, the OMIs, uh, like most religious congregations, give a, an assignment, what they call an obedience, uh, when the when the priest is first ordained, and it can be anywhere in the world that the oblates serve, not necessarily just their province. 
So um, in his case, uh, as in any case of any oblate, they would write a letter to the superior general who would make that first obedience assignment to them. And I looked at the letter he wrote, and he said, I'd be happy to serve wherever the oblate congregation would like to send me. However, given my disability, it would make more sense if perhaps I stayed somewhere in the United States. He said, I, I, I would be happy to serve in a Newman Center or preach retreats. But, uh, you know, a lot of people tell me maybe I should be teaching. And so uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what his provincial was angling for, because their seminary really could have used him at the time. And so uh, he was sent to start teaching at their seminary in past Christian, Mississippi, right on the Gulf Coast. And uh, about a year or so after that, he started his doctoral studies down the road in New Orleans at Tulane University. Tulane, yeah. He got his first doctorate in American philosophy. Oh, that's really interesting. And then where did he go after he taught in the seminary? Where did he go from there? So then he was there for a few years. He finished up his doctorate. And then they closed that seminary in Mississippi and relocated their philosophy program to Creighton University in Omaha. Oh, yeah. And uh, so he he joined the philosophy faculty there and was involved with OMI formation. So they had a separate house off campus. And then uh, within a year, he became chair of the philosophy department. And he was only in his early 30s <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And uh, at a Jesuit school, they had an OMI who was chair of the philosophy department. And um, and then he went off to Rome for the general chapter of the congregation in 1972. And it was not long after that that he was appointed provincial. And so uh, it was 19, early 1973. He was in his mid-30s and he was appointed provincial for the central province of the United States, which was most of the Midwest. Uh, and so that was quite a learning curve. He was in charge of over 200 priests at the time and uh, had to leave his teaching career behind at that point. Uh, hopefully not forever in his mind. He, he thought maybe he'd be provincial for, you know, three or six years and then move on back to his academic pursuits. But uh, actually a year and a half later, the OMIs were thrown into kind of a, a crisis point in these kind of strange years after Vatican II, their superior general resigned less than two years after his election. Uh, he was an American and he had fallen in love with a religious woman and had been carrying that on for some time and decided he shouldn't live his double life anymore. And so he resigned. They had to have another general chapter in 1974. So Francis George's provincial goes back to the general chapter and he is a rising star in the community, still in his mid to late 30s. And uh, um, they want him to be superior general. And he got up. I read the text from the minutes. He got up and said, not me. No, I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. Please not me. Yeah. But uh, and, and a lot of people were saying they'll never elect another American anyway after this one has left and thrown the order into chaos because it even postponed the beatification of their founder, St. Eugene de Mazenod. So anyway, uh, uh, they elected Francis George's former spiritual director from uh, a seminary that he attended in Ottawa, Canada. And his name was Father Fernand Jeté. And he was a very much introverted guy. And so he pushed and said, well, if I'm going to do this, I don't really like traveling, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take the superior general role if you want to elect me. I'll accept this as God's, God's providence. But I really would like Francis George at my side. And so he was elected vicar general 
And he served in that capacity for two terms, 12 years, living in Rome, traveling the world. Um, he, he, and he never slept in a hotel. He always stayed in the mission, sleeping on the, on the bare floors, perhaps in Africa or Asia or wherever. He was always living the life of the Oblates and immersed into the culture and the society that they were ministering in. And uh, it was a real interesting uh, change of events because... Well Chicago Even, didn't think he could get downtown to their seminary. <laughs> yeah. Traveling the globe. So. So pause for a second, because, you know, this goes to once again, the question of his, you know, his personal character and maybe even his sanctity, which is you say he didn't stay in a hotel. He's, you know, he lived the life that the other oblates lived, but it, I, it was probably possible for him to stay in a hotel, right? That that would have been an option open to him, a more a more yeah. comfortable and luxurious set and of digs. Here. Uh, yeah, yeah. He always wanted to stay with the OMI. They created a lot of interesting scenarios in his life, but he really believed as as vicar general, it was his job to get a sense of what the OMI life was like around the world. Because he couldn't be of service to them if he didn't know what their life was like. And so that's, again, part of his his character is that he's always wanting to be of service. He's always wanting to give of himself. And um, it resulted sometimes he was kicked out of country. Sometimes he was detained uh, at borders and all sorts of, of strange things that happened to him in his uh, his travels. But, yeah, I mean, certainly his sanctity emerged at this time too because it was a very difficult era in the life of the church and trying to keep this religious congregation together you know he really helped lead kind of an internal reform to kind of have their own resourcement if if it if it could be described yeah. way and yeah and revise their constitutions and so on and so forth um so he he really with with father jeté was a, a great team to uh to bring new life to the congregation yeah. And, you know, uh, it, it's I mean, it just sounds to me, I mean, this is a guy who didn't grow up, you know, in a wealthy family. Uh, and, you know, it's in other words, the, the, the picture I'd like to paint for the viewers and the listeners is that uh, this is not a man who was captivated by mammon, by by money, by comfort, by he was not an Epicurean. He, he wasn't one who, if you went out to dinner, would order the fanciest bottles of wine and, and all those sorts of things that, you know, it, it, those are one of the vices sometimes of the clerical class, especially perhaps even of the Episcopal classes, um, you know, of, of take God knows if I ever became a bishop, I'd probably I, I would probably been ordered, been, been, been like that bishop ordered cut flowers special for his room, you know, his house. Uh uh, what was his well, he name? He did not take advantage of the office. I, maybe that was Bishop Bransfield. Bransfield. Yeah. Bishop Bransfield. Yeah. Would charter a private jet to go an hour away to give a talk and cut flowers. But we, we don't want to go down that road. Uh, that's not the point. Uh, the point is, is that Cardinal George was a man who preferred as a religious to, to lead a life of material simplicity. Uh, yes, well, the OMIs are dedicated to the poor. You know, their mission is yeah. to announce the gospel to the poor. And he he always wanted to, to live the experience of the poor. Um, he never took advantage of his office, no matter what that office might have been. He was someone who really gave of himself in that way. You know, when he was uh, fast forwarding just for a moment to connect to this, when he was Archbishop of Chicago, he floated the idea of selling the Archbishop's residence, which is a very historic, beautiful place. And he said, I'd rather live near the poor. Yeah. Uh, 
that was that was just part of who he was and um when yeah. he was when he was bishop of yakima he gave an interview once and they said if you could get three wishes what would they be well they none of them were about himself but the third one he said he'd give away to the poorest person of yakima county that's the kind there of there you idea. go okay well let's you bring up him being bishop of yakima so let's fast forward to cardinal george gets the call <laughs> he gets the tap on the shoulder from rome we want you to be the bishop of yakima uh, yeah. and, and so briefly detail, I mean, how did that come about? How long was he in Yakima? Was he well received there? What was his time there like? Well, right after he left uh, being vicar general, he spent some time in the Boston area helping uh, get a think tank started up uh, that Cardinal Law had instigated called the uh, Cambridge <clears throat> Center for Faith and Reason. So he was there about three, four years. And then um the, the OMIs wanted to bring him back. They wanted him back in the province in the Midwest. And Cardinal Law said, no, I need him to keep this going. And the OMIs would write a letter. I found all this. And the OMI said, no, 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 we need him back. And Cardinal Law, no, 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 I need him for this center that I'm getting off the ground. And finally, the OMI said, nope, we're signing him effective July 1st uh, to this place in Belleville. And uh well, 10 days after that, July 10th, he got the call to be a bishop. Cardinal Law had intervened in that. So he got the final say. Uh, the story is that they took the the first kind of place that opened up, which was Yakima, that had just been vacated uh, rather quickly, um, which is an interesting story in itself. But uh, so he uh, was assigned to Yakima. And at first, the priest there didn't know what to make of him. Here's this egghead coming from out east, as they said. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's never been a parish pastor, but now he's our bishop. Uh, well, the the priests and the people all fell in love with him. Uh, when he left Yakima five and a half years later uh, to go to Portland, the local newspaper there had the headline, The Good Bishop. That's what they referred to him out there as. Now, uh -huh. he did a struggle in the culture there between uh, the Hispanic community and the Anglo community. There's a large fruit growing um, operation in the area. And so yeah. they relied on migrant workers and the, they were getting taken advantage of, they felt. And so they went to the bishop, George, and asked him to kind of mediate uh, these two communities. And and he did. He was he, he was loved by both sides. And as I say, when he left, they called him the good bishop. But he, he loved it out there because it was a poorer place. Uh, yeah, there were wealthy people, certainly, and he, he got along with them, too. But he just loved the area. He loved the, 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 the you know, the hillside, the countryside. He loved the, uh, the people, the native peoples, too, the large Native American population there. And so he was able, with his, his brilliance, and he got a second doctorate while he was living in Rome in theology at the Urbanianum, which he focused on John Paul II's uh, ecclesiology with cultures. And so he was able to take all that he learned and really make it practical and uh, accessible to people in the way that he governed as a bishop. And then he went on to Portland. Then he went on uh, to Portland and was there uh, 11 months <laughs> and got the call to go to Chicago. And he tried yeah. to talk He tried, in both cases, I would say, First with Yakima, because first of all, he said, where's that? But then he he took the train <laughs> down from Boston to the nunciature and tried to talk them out of the appointment. He said, I don't want to be a bishop. I don't have the skills to be a bishop. Please don't name me a bishop. Uh, and then when he was assigned to Portland, he tried to talk them out of that, too. And then when he was assigned to Chicago, he said to the nuncio, this is just not fair. I've only been here 11 months and I, I simply can't leave. 
<laughs> nope, you're mm. going to Chicago. <laughs> there you go. And what year was he made the Archbishop of Chicago? He was appointed in April of 97 and was installed in May of 97. And then in June of 97, he received the pallium. And then uh, in January of 98, so just a few months later, he was named a cardinal and received the red hat the following February of 98. There you go. So obviously John Paul loved him uh, and, uh, and, it, and admired him. Uh, and it was very get... much mutual, very much mutual. He, he regarded uh, John Paul as really a father figure. And rightly so, uh, as did many. I was in seminary. At, well, in the uh, I was in seminary in the late seventies and early eighties when John Paul was first uh, first elected. Yeah, and he was inspiring to an entire generation of us uh, as we were coming up. Uh, obviously, I didn't make it to priesthood, <laughs> but uh, okay. So now we're we're where the rubber meets the road. Okay, so this is where most people take up the story of Cardinal George. And it is okay. He's that dude who was the archbishop and cardinal in Chicago. And so what what was his time in Chicago like? Uh, was it contentious? I mean, we've already talked about how Chicago can be ungovernable and so forth. But did, did that did that result in him having an almost impossible relationship with most of his priests? Uh, was it a contentious time there overall, you know, in, in the big picture? Um, or was it, or, or was it more erratic? It was, it was, I would say very contentious and I think a cause of great suffering for him. He, he had the political dynamic of Chicago and the democratic machine and all that, that he had to navigate, which I think he was always uneasy with the political life of the city, but then that bleeds its way in through the church. And then you have other issues within the church I think that the uh, the sex abuse crisis hit him very hard in Chicago. It was a great source of pain for him because there was a major abuse case that happened on his watch. Uh, he didn't cover up. He didn't do anything uh, himself wrong. But there were layers of the archdiocesan bureaucracy that caused the situation not to be handled as well as it should have been. And he took the blame for that because he said, at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. I think that was a little uh, unfairer because and I explain this in the book because uh, both in in legal proceedings, depositions and so on, but news coverage and other things, I think I was able to put together the story of how the cardinal really wasn't well served by those under him. And it wasn't just in this abuse case, it was in all sorts of situations as his uh, ministry as archbishop unfolded in Chicago. I think that he had a hard time knowing who to trust. I think that he had a hard time knowing what decisions to make because he had to weigh out all these possible scenarios in the aftermath. And um, at the end of the day, I think he felt that he was also a failure in many ways. Uh, he he felt that he he wasn't really able to govern Chicago as he wanted to. You know, as I mentioned earlier, when he came to Chicago, there was a large group of priests led by the cathedral rector at the time who said, we don't want him here. You know, and they wrote the nuncio. And now why didn't they want him there? Well, they referred to him as Francis the Corrector. And they said that he was someone who, you know, uh, when he came to a parish, would tell them what they were doing wrong liturgically. And he knows better than us. And we're the ones that are on the ground. And don't you know, he was never a parish priest like we are. And, uh, you know, they felt like he had no room telling them what to do. And 
I would say, you know, of course, with his attention that he paid to the seminary and kind of bringing that um, uh, seminary around at Mundelein and really focusing on forming new priests, according to the mind of the church, uh, with that and his availability where he always made himself available to any priest that wanted to talk to him at any time, um, and his character, his integrity, his authenticity, those things came together. And I think by the time he retired, the priests of Chicago, if they didn't love him, they greatly respected him. Uh, and, and so I think he, you know, he was able to um, turn things around in that regard. Uh, in the end, I, I think that Chicago was a crucible for him, though. And I think it tested him in every possible way, because not only that, then he started getting these bouts with cancer, bladder, uh, kidney, liver cancer. And it, three times he had to go through regimens of treatment for that. Ultimately, that's what took his life in 2015. Right. But uh, <laughs> and then he was drawn into all these other things nationally and internationally, too, with with the new missile or being elected vice president and president of the bishops conference or being really the point man for the U.S. bishops behind the scenes in Rome to make sure zero tolerance became a legal reality and it wasn't just a temporary provision. He really yeah. went toe-to-toe -to -toe with some curial cardinals and uh, and wanted to make sure that the church was able to maintain its credibility in the wake yeah. of the sex abuse crisis. So he, I think a lot of that was internalized too, and that maybe the cancer, his, doc, his own doctor told me that, that maybe the, the cancer could have been... Uh, a result of all that uh, anguish that he went through. Well, yeah, I mean, a well-known, uh, you know, one of the well-known factors in, in cancer is of course, stress. Yeah. And uh, that, that more than likely was a contributing factor. Let's back up a second. Uh, you mentioned Mundelein seminary and, you know, of course I have an interest in seminaries and I haven't been a seminarian myself, but also as a theologian, realizing how important they are. I'm all, you know, I also know Bishop Robert Barron, and he was rector of Mundelein Seminary. Uh, Mundelein Seminary was not always known as a particular, you know, among sort of Orthodox Catholics, anyway, was not always known as someplace stellar, right? It, it had a kind of reputation. It, it, I have to say, when I was in seminary, Mundelein did not have a horrible reputation as, oh, my God, don't go there. It's just riddled with this. It's riddled with that. But it certainly didn't have a glowing reputation either. Uh, it, it just seemed to be a rather mediocre place overall. Now, at least that's the impression that I had, uh, you know, as a seminarian um, way back when. Uh, and so what what it was Cardinal George, right, who made Robert Barron rector of yeah. Mundelein Seminary. So uh, des describe a little bit the relationship of Cardinal George with Robert Barron uh, and, and why he wanted Barron to lead Mundelein and what the result of that was. Yeah, I, when he first got to Mundelein after his appointment, <laughs> everybody remembers the line he made uh, uh, in the chapel there, where are the kneelers? <laughs> and yeah. so it kind of sums up what you're saying, right? That the chapel didn't have kneelers, and he saw that as a as a key problem. Uh, people thought that he was overreacting and being dramatic, but he was getting at the heart of something, wasn't he? When he said yes. that, yeah, and uh, yeah, Baron was um, not his first rector, um, but he was the last rector that that served under him at Mundelein, and of course. 
uh, Bishop Barron and Cardinal George were uh, intellectually uh, compatible, right? Right, right. And Barron, when he was getting word on fire underway, um, uh, who, he was, the Cardinal asked him to take that on. Uh, to start an evangelization ministry for the service of the archdiocese. And so he would stay at the at the bishop's residence in Chicago for some periods of time while he was working on these things. And so they would have long, engaging conversations. And uh, I certainly think that that Cardinal George uh, felt that that Bishop Barron could be an asset to the seminary and to the formation of of future clerics. I think uh, if I remember correctly, I was a student, at the Catholic University at the time, and Barron was was uh, trying out for a faculty position there, and wanted to go to CUA. Uh, I went I went to his lecture that he gave uh, at, during the application process, and Cardinal George wouldn't let him go. And uh, <laughs> you know, history is history, right? And uh, in the end, he ended up becoming rector there, and now we know he's a bishop. And I I think Cardinal George very much had something to do with that too. <clears throat> oh, more than likely he did. Yes, more than likely. Um, and well, you mentioned that they that Baron and uh, and Cardinal George were theologically compatible. So let's let's dig into that just a little bit. What was Cardinal George's theology like? We place him in in the continuum of theological thinking in 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 that part of the you know of, of our time. Well, uh, the famous line where he says liberal Catholicism is an exhausted project kind of gets at the indication of where he stood. A lot of people wanted to label him as a rabid conservative. He was hardly that at all. Uh, yeah. He was way too nuanced for that. He, he, he was, uh, you know, one of the clearest thinkers among the U.S. Episcopate. And, and so bishop after bishop would tell me, that when he spoke at the U.S. bishops meetings, everyone would listen, which is not always the case. They're usually working on their iPad or their laptop right in the next column for the paper or whatever. But when he spoke, uh, because he, he was he was concerned about truth, when he was assigned to Chicago in the press conference, they they the Chicago media asked him, are you a liberal Catholic or a conservative Catholic? And he said, I'm not liberal or conservative. He said, I'm Catholic and Catholic, Catholicism isn't liberal or conservative. Catholicism is about true and false. And, uh, you know, that they, they were mystified by that in the Chicago media. And a lot of people in the church were, too, because he was being labeled by a lot of pundits at the time as this arch conservative from Rome. You know, had lived in Rome all these years and and uh, was a John Paul man. And I think I quote in the book, uh, Father Tom Reese said something. This is a man who is is much more of a teacher than a pastor. Well, George saw those things as inseparable as the church does. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. And Tom Reese is is not exactly the most objective of commentators, right? Yes. Uh, and uh, well, anyway, let's just—I'm not going to trash Tom Reese, although I'm not a fan. Uh, we'll move on from there. Uh, so, in other words, uh, it, it, what it, you know, it seems to me, knowing you know uh, Robert Barron and what I know about uh, Cardinal George. Is I mean, it seems that he falls within that school of theology, r roughly speaking, that has come to be known as resourcement theology yeah. or yes. communio theology, that, that that school of thought. And as much as it might mystify people that that means you're neither liberal nor conservative, that's actually exactly true. Okay. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's exactly true. Um, as a resourcement theologian myself, 
who runs a blog, uh, you know, that people read. It, it's, you know, a, a bit of a tangent. I'll, I'll tell this story because I think it's interesting to, to illustrate what we're talking about here. Uh, I have uh, obviously subscribers to my blog and, and quite a few of them now after after three years. But it, uh, and I get the statistics, I get the metrics right daily, how, how many new subscribers and then you get cancellations. Well, it's really curious. And whenever I'll write a blog post, like really going after the progressive wing of the church, I get this uptick in subscribers. So then the next time I come around, I'll post something where I'm really going after the the rad trads, the radical traditionalists. And all of a sudden I see this, this, this <laughs> dropping off, right? Like, cause uh, you know, everybody, all the, all the trads have flocked to the blog cause I'm trashing the progressives. As soon as I trash the trads, I lose all them, but then the next day whoop, up goes, so I'm picking up the, some of the more progressive ones and, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like that, depending exactly on what it is I'm blogging about. And it really struck me one day that people really are into a kind of team theology sort of thing that they like to read blogs and so forth because it's an echo chamber. It's like this balkanized echo chamber. And so long as you're saying things I agree with, I'll subscribe to you and so on. But that that quality of my blog writing is directly the result, not of any special genius on my part, but of the kind of theology that I that I know, which is race source. And that's exactly what Cardinal George and people like Robert Barron face as well. You are just constantly misunderstood because everybody wants to pigeonhole you immediately as yeah. a liberal or a conservative. And yet you're not. Yeah. And he 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 would often fight against those labels. You know, he said what Catholicism, as I said, is is true and false. And he, he, you know, he, 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 he yeah. enacted that he blew up these, these um, ideological uh, assignments that people wanted to give to their faith life. And, you know, where they put ideology, as we see so regularly still today, above all else, and we fit the faith into those categories. He, he wanted nothing to do with that. He was allergic to it. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, as he said, uh, we're Catholics on Christ terms not on any other terms and uh yeah. so often missing from from the sides that we talk about right like they're they they don't really want to get at uh what it really means to submit yourself completely to Christ exactly right? exactly so you're pigeonholed as a conservative an arch conservative because you simply accept what the church teaches wow okay that makes me conservative but then then the conservatives get all angry with you because you actually believe in what the church teaches, which means that you're not necessarily all on board with capitalism and, you know, military industrial complex. You know, I'm a Catholic worker. Right. So, you know, and, and that's the way Dorothy Day was as well. You know, she accepted all church doctrine, but all of it, not selectively so that, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to anger everybody after a while if you actually pay attention to the truth of what it is that the Catholic Church teaches all across the board. Yep. And he would, he would get, you know, angry letters from far right and far left, which tells you that he was right where he should be. Yeah. And that's not to say that he was in some sort of uh, fanciful middle, which was a compromise between two extremes. No, you occupy a Catholic zone, which just transcends all of that nonsense uh, of right and left. In, in some important ways. Now, this is not a tangent. I think it's actually very important in understanding Cardinal George that we understand 
absolutely this aspect about him because it i think it is one of the greatest sources still to this day for most people who don't understand these categories uh it's one of the greatest sources of misunderstanding who this man was one of my biggest hopes with this book is that it kind of you know destroys that pigeonholing that cardinal george suffered from you know because he he as you say you know he said some things that were controversial and and you know uh which i get into in the book where he's you know immediately thrown to the wolves by the media but at the end of the day if you take his kind of professorial whole context you see a very nuanced rational thinker who was not approaching these things through any lens other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think uh, it, it was, it was a great disservice to the church for people to constantly be pigeonholing him because we never could listen to him fully. I tried to rely a lot on his words in this book, his own words. And uh, you know, he, he saw things as they were, he didn't, um, he didn't try to put himself or any of his own personal uh, views into any of this. He he was he was he really made of himself as an oblate of Mary Immaculate, an oblation to Christ, and that's what his ministry was about. As was teaching was about, that was who he yeah. was about. Christ and Him crucified, an oblation to the crucified Christ, and uh, and and that means an, an oblation to the truth um, yeah. overall. In that sense, he also. You know, not only had great affinities with John Paul, but with Pope Benedict, obviously, uh, because that was a central motif in 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 Benedict's theology as Ratzinger, and, and then even as Pope. You know, simply this question of truth, and there's no prescinding from this question of truth. Now, he actually he was in a conclave too, right? He was in two. Yeah, he he elected. Uh, he was in the conclave that elected Benedict, and in the conclave that elected Francis. Um, so 2005, 2013, uh, which, you know, a lot of Cardinals don't even get a conclave. So that was kind of a unique experience for him. Yeah. I remember, uh, Robert Barron once telling me, uh, when I was out in California shooting the show, uh, that when Cardinal George, when, when Benedict was elected, I, I think it was when Benedict was elected, uh, Cardinal George sort of looked out at the crowds as Benedict was being introduced and looking at the great obelisk there that stood in yeah. you know, St. Peter's and realizing this is where St. Peter was crucified and, and thinking to himself, where is Caesar now? Okay. All right. Where is Caesar? There's a great now? photo of that moment. And Cardinal uh, George Pell, of course, who just died, was right next right. to him <laughs> in that photo. Uh, of course, they were they were good friends and collaborators over the years. But yeah, that's uh, vintage Cardinal George to be in a, in a historic moment like that and thinking about the situational context of the moment. He wasn't lost in the in the cameras going off or the people screaming. And clapping. No, what he was lost in was the fact that we've just elected another successor to a man who was crucified right out here yep. by by the imperial authorities. And now 2000 years later, where is that imperial authority? And yet that crucified man's successor is standing here next to me. Uh, and that says something about truth. Once again, it says something about the nature of reality. This is this. In other words, this is where Cardinal George's mind immediately went to. What is the meaning of everything? What is the truth of things? And the truth of things is that the torturers do not have the last word. That's right. That, that's that's the truth of things. 
uh, and that the cruciform Christ really is the eternal lamb who was slain that is actually the king of the world um, in, in paradoxical and strange ways. I've always, I love that story. I think that's just such a great, great story. Uh, from this is what Cardinal George was thinking when, when Bennett, but my, my goodness, just on a personal level, I've often wondered, geez, I'd like to be a Cardinal just to be in one conclave, right. To be inside the Sistine chapel and writing. I mean, how do they do it? Like they write on a little piece of paper and hand it to somebody. And then, you know, it's, do you have they, to hide? Yeah. Do you have to hide the paper to make sure the guy sitting next to you doesn't, doesn't <laughs> steal a peek at who you're voting for? <laughs> You don't want word to get out. You voted for yourself, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, especially if you vote for yourself, you don't yeah. want anybody seeing that you voted for yourself. And how then embarrassing it would be as the tote board comes up that you only have one vote and it's and it's, it's yours. <laughs> Some people have commented that about a couple of cardinals where things were leaked in recent years, but I will leave that aside. He wrote yeah. about his experience because uh, they have to take an oath before they deposit right right Alice or something and he wrote about how that happens right in front of Michelangelo's depiction of the last judgment right and that just brought home to him the sacred reality of what he was doing that he would have to answer to almighty God for the man he was voting for and he took that very seriously yeah and, and well and well he should uh, it wasn't and... a, it wasn't a political action for him it was an action of salvation history and one hopes that that same impression there in the Sistine Chapel with Michelangelo's paintings looming over you, that even the most political of cardinals, cynical, hardened, Machiavellian, <clears throat> might at that moment have a moment of grace, you know, and humility because of the setting. It's actually a stroke of genius to have the conclave in there, I think, right. to reinforce yeah. those feelings. I have to, my viewers are going to have to pardon me for a second. As you can tell, I still have a little bit of a little of the bronchitis I picked up in Rome. So I'm going to pop here another cough drop. My, my apologies to everybody for my little hacking and coughing here. All right. So uh, we're, we're, we're almost to an hour here now. So he's, he's Cardinal of Chicago. Let's talk a little bit then about his suffering, his cancer, uh, you, the bladder cancer was the first round of cancer, right? What, what do you know what year that was? I mean, I know you wrote about it, but 2007, uh, no, 2006. So in the, in the summer of 2006, he uh, experienced blood in the urine. And so he had to get testing and uh, the cancer was seen to be quite developed in the bladder. So he had to go through what they um, call a radical operation where they remove the bladder and constructed an artificial bladder out of intestine. And uh, a lot of people don't know about that with him. Uh, he had to live with this uh, artificial bladder, which didn't have the ability to know when you needed to avoid. Uh, right. And so he had to, you know, live with that suffering and wear a special watch. So when he slept at night, he would wake up because he didn't, you know, want things to unfold in certain ways. That's, an, that's a terrible suffering when you think about it. Um, getting up, you yeah. know, you have to you have to live by that clock. Um, and so that was the rest of his life for uh, eight years. Then he had to live that way. And then the, the cancer came. They kept tabs on it. And in 2012, the cancer uh, came back. He had to undergo treatment and they thought things were OK. But then uh, by the end of 2014, as he said, 
the doctors ran out of tricks in the bag. He had been in an experimental procedure and it wasn't working. And he announced that, I think, on New Year's Eve or something of 2014 after his retirement. And then he was dead by April 17th. And obviously then the cancer spread. Yeah, it was in it was in uh, the kidneys, uh, initially one of the kidneys, but then both when he died and uh, uh, liver. So he actually then died from metastatic uh, bladder cancer. Yeah. So in other words, it was the bladder cancer that, that finally killed him. It wasn't you know, three separate rounds of different kinds of cancer. Yeah, uh, it, 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 the bladder had been removed, but that cancer had already kind of invaded in different spots yeah yeah it hides it definitely hides the amazing course, thing was you know when he got the cancer um and went through that first treatment and, and surgery and all that he, he nearly died in that operation uh, they had to bring him right back into the er because he was bleeding internally <laughs> they didn't quite sew everything up the way they should have and yeah. his blood pressure had plummeted but then let's see that was that was august of 2006 by the following year, November of 2007, he was elected president of the U.S. Bishops Conference. <laughs> but he was back. Let, <laughs> let that be known that you can become the president of the Bishops Conference, even with severe, uh, severe uh, suffering and, and disabilities of that kind. At least if you're Francis George, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, just that his, the reason why I bring it up, though, is that his fellow bishops knew. You know, no. that this was a man who, you know, obviously had been handicapped by polio, uh, but now had had a round of bladder cancer. His closest friends in the episcopacy knew, all right, that his surgery had been radical and so on. Uh, and so they had to know asking him to become president was going to be burdensome. Uh, and yet they did so anyway. And I think that shows uh, uh, the, the tremendous respect that his fellow bishops, you know, had for him. Uh, yeah, he was elected with one of the largest majorities of, of the bishop's president votes. And uh, he, you know, he, as I said, everybody listened to him, even if they were kind of ideologically different than he uh, or opposed to some of the things he taught. They they knew that he was the kind of leader they needed. And that was at the time of HHS mandate and all those things, too. So it was kind yeah. of providential that he, that he uh, came in at the time he did. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let, me, let me ask you then, uh, we're running uh, towards the end of our time here. Uh, okay. So we're, we're at the point where, you know, okay. So Cardinal George, uh, has, he died in, in 2015. And then Cardinal Supich uh, takes over uh, for him in 2015. Uh, so what is the lingering what it, uh, legacy? of Cardinal George in Chicago. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, is, is it now like, well, he's gone. We're on to the next guy. Uh, Bye-bye Cardinal George. Thank you for your service, uh, but we're done. And we're, we moved on. Or, or is there a more enduring legacy for Card for Cardinal George in Chicago still? Well, that's something that's, uh, you know, continues to be gauged as time goes on. Um, I think that, Turning to his own words on that question, when he said, what would, you know, the media kept asking, what would your legacy be? He said, the, you are my legacy. The people are, are my legacy. If you have somehow become holier because of my ministry, that's the only legacy that we could talk about. And that was his final homily as Archbishop of Chicago. He, that was his answer to that question. Um, 
one of the the small ways that that you can sense this uh, is visiting his grave. He he chose not to be buried in the Archbishop's mausoleums, uh, mausoleum where where Cardinal Bernadine, Cardinal Cody, Cardinal Stritch, all you know, many others uh, were buried. There were two uh, cardinals who were buried on the property of Mundelein Seminary. But he was the first native-born archbishop, as I mentioned. He wanted to be buried with his family in a regular plot, in a regular Catholic cemetery. And when you visit his grave, as I've done many times, you find things that people have left there. You find flowers, you find wreaths, you find candles, you find statues, you find pictures of people who are ill or dead or whatever in the family is asking Cardinal George's intercession. You find handwritten notes where people are asking for his prayers for particular problems. It's really amazing to see. Well, it's amazing to see not just in terms of um, uh, he obviously touched a lot of people and that they've taken the time to do this. I mean, this is what in an earlier era we would have said that that's the, the rising of a spontaneous cult of sainthood. Exactly. That's that's how I see it myself. I, you know, Cardinal George was someone who, as a pastor, he was always the last to leave an event. You'd think the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago would be whisked away as soon as he recessed out of the church for a mass or something. But that wasn't the case with him. And the people remember that about him, that he was always one of them. Uh, when he would go to a big fancy Chicago hotel for a, a fundraising banquet or something, and he'd come in through the kitchen and he'd not only greet the wait staff and so on, but sometimes he'd stay and eat his meal with them after uh, he gave a talk or something like that. And, and those things don't go away from the minds of people. You know, they saw him truly when he came to Chicago. He said, I'm Francis, your neighbor. And that's really how he lived. He lived as one of his people. And uh, when he died and, and the, the body was brought from the cathedral up to Desplaines, Illinois, which uh, is in the northwest uh, part of Cook County near uh, O'Hare Airport, uh, the procession, you saw people stopping from all walks of life along the roadside. The Kennedy Expressway is shut down to bring his body to his final resting place. People are bawling their eyes out. That's the kind of man he was. I have a picture in the book of, and there are many others like it, but of a woman kissing his mortal remains. I I, I remember being there uh, during some of the days of visitation and prayer, people touching his body, touching rosaries to his hands, kissing his hands. I mean, it looked like, you know, veneration of relics in some way. It was very very interesting to to see. And now that's continuing, as I say, by people visiting his grave. Um, So, I think that the, those are the sorts of things. I think people identify with his his suffering. You know, they know about the polio. They know about the the limp that he walked with and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and while the media usually saw him when he was kind of responding to a crisis and might have been a little gruff or a little out of sorts, uh, the people of Chicago saw him when he was at his best. And uh, I think at the end of the day, those are the lingering memories of Francis George. Those are certainly the memories that were recounted to me and the many people that I talked to in writing this book. Well, one hopes that eventually a cause for canonization will will arise. All I, right. that. I, I hope uh, everyone listening and watching could uh, pray to him as well, because many I, I included at the very end of the book. People have have felt that he has responded with favors you know, when they've sought his intercession. So 
Well, uh, maybe I'll start asking for his favors and seek his intercession. Many bishops told me how they pray to him every day. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. I that that's that's new to me. That's news. Uh, that fellow bishops are doing the same. This is all very good news because as soon as he passed away, I thought to myself, he's a saint. I think Cardinal George is a saint. And I'm I'm glad to hear that a lot of other people think the same. And so here's here's hoping that a cause for canonization will arise eventually. Uh, and and there will be some headway on that. But in, on the other hand, you don't necessarily have to wait for the church to make an official pronouncement uh, that he's a saint, uh, that one can go ahead and ask for the good cardinal's intercession. Uh, that That's for sure. I do it all the time with deceased people, I think, are, are I, I'm still I'm already asking Pope Benedict for his intercession. Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. too. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, when I was in Rome for his funeral, yeah, I was already praying to him, <laughs> thinking I need I need the intercession uh, big time. And uh, you wonder, you know, like, does a freshly minted ent entrant into heaven have more, you know, the, the, have more clout than somebody who's been around for, you know, millennia or something? I don't know. No. Uh, <laughs> we'll know when we get there, if we, if, if we do get there, if thankfully. Get there, right. <laughs> Well, is there okay? As we wrap this up, is there anything else you want to leave the uh, viewers, listeners with? I would just say, you know, Cardinal George is is someone who I regard, and many other people regard as one of the most important figures in American Catholic history. Yeah, but you know, looking at his life and all the contributions he made to the life of the church in Chicago or wherever he was bishop, or nationally or internationally. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing about him is what he pointed to as his legacy, the people. And if if we can find in him some inspiration, if we can find in him a witness, a disciple to whom, you know, we can turn to, who can inspire us, who can help us give Christ glory as he did throughout his whole life. Right. That's his real legacy. Hence I, the title of your book, Glorifying Christ. Yeah, that was a play off his Episcopal motto, too, which was yeah, to place yeah. be glory in the church. Uh, that 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 was his life. And um, so yeah, I hope absolutely. that you know, these virtues that I, I try to pull out, not in an overbearing way, um, can really be a source of, of inspiration to people in their own answer to the call to holiness. Well, I can't wait to get a, a copy of the actual I've seen the book, obviously, in the in the galleys that, that you sent to me for review. Uh, and, uh, you know, I read it voracious. I read it quick. It's a really great read. It reads it's beautifully written. Uh, and uh, I highly encourage everybody listening here to, to if you're interested in Cardinal George at all, it's really a great biography. I learned a lot from reading it uh, and, and gained a tremendous amount, uh, even more respect than I already had for Cardinal George and reading it really humanizes him uh, very, very well. So I commend you for writing it, Michael. I know it wasn't always easy. There were a few obstacles along the way. Yes, uh, so I found that the, the evil one does not like Francis George, as you were kind of mentioning at the beginning, has stood in our way. Uh, there were some obstacles, some serious obstacles along the way, as you might expect for any recently deceased person such as, as uh, him, you know. But uh, yeah, and there's the doors when when doors closed, he opened the doors. And so the book is out and here we are. It's sad, but true that even in the church, one finds pettiness <laughs> and yeah, and obstacles in the way. 
Uh, so, but thankfully you overcame those obstacles. It's published by our Sunday visitor press. And so I highly recommend people order it from our Sunday visitor press, not Amazon, but if you must use Amazon, I've yeah, started, well, I've started lately doing that. I've started lately going straight to the publisher. Oh, good. They and be not because most, most publishers have their own webpage where you can order stuff. You don't have to go through yeah. Amazon. Yeah. OSV is uh, OSV Catholic bookstore.com. And uh, you can go on there and the books available for pre-order there, just as it is uh, in all sorts of other uh, retail sites. Uh, if people are interested in ebook format, uh, that's available not through our Sunday visitor, but through uh, like Barnes and Noble or Amazon or pl- other. OK, places. well, that's, that's good. That's available now as of last week. And the uh, print is is uh, due out early March. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, I wish it well. I, I hope it sells 10 million copies and you're able to retire to a South Pacific Island drinking things with umbrellas in them. Oh, uh, and, and, no interest in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's just my dream. No, my dream is to actually retire someday in Rome. And if I ever had enough money, I would retire in Rome, uh, my favorite city in the world. Uh, but I, I doubt I'm going to write a book that will sell 10 million copies. So well, I doubt this will either, but we can only pray that Cardinal George's story could reach that many people. <laughs> That's right. I would love that. I would love that. Hey, well, thank you very much, Michael, for, for coming That's on and any, and anybody, uh, that really is interested in the life of Cardinal George should get the book. So thanks a lot, everyone for listening. And thank you, Michael, uh, for, uh, coming on the show. Thank, thank you. you. Great privilege.